When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast. Today, I have Simon from Uneducated Economist. How are you doing today, Simon? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? Very well. Thank you. Simon, for those that don't know, what is Uneducated Economist? <laughs> well, Uneducated Economist is pretty much my outlet for talking economics. Um, I started the Uneducated Economist because I needed a place to kind of start a conversation because I was driving my friends and family nuts. And so it was my outlet. You know, when I first started this, not many people were really following me. So I just kind of used it as my personal journal just to kind of think about the, some of the things that I was uh, experiencing within the economy and some of my ideas. And when I was sharing them on YouTube, I found that a lot of people really uh, enjoyed my perspectives and my insight into the lumber and building industry. And it really took off from there. Have you always been into the economy? Um, not exactly always been into the economy, but I've been following for quite some time. Uh, really, it started from failure. Uh, I tried buying a house back in 2007, and you know, we immediately went into the great financial crisis after that. I lost my job, started losing everything I had, and pretty much uh, went into foreclosure on that house. And I really wanted to know what was going on. So I started uh, researching different things that were ha happening within the economy. Basically, it started with um, mortgage-backed securities. I was watching TV, and they were talking about how mortgage-backed securities were falling. So I had no idea what a mortgage-backed security was. And so I turned off the TV, went to my computer. What's a mortgage-backed security? So I read up on that. And I'm like, okay, so you know, mortgage-backed security, it's kind of like as if you took a box and threw a bunch of mortgages in it and sold it off to an investor. I'm like, okay, I kind of understand that. So I went back to the computer or back to the TV, turned it on, and they were talking about credit default swaps. And I said, okay, what's a credit default swap? Oh, I see. It's like an insurance policy for the mortgage-backed security. And I'm like, oh, whoa, that's interesting. So next thing I know, I'm diving into Federal Reserve, fractional reserve banking, and just kept going from there. Let's go back to what your day job is, because I think that's really important especially as we get further down the road, if you will, right? So after high school, what did you do? Uh, so when I was in high school, my senior year, I took a job at a lumber yard, pretty much just stocking shelves and driving forklift around. And I pretty much stuck inside of the building industry from either supply, you know, being a supplier of building materials or assembling these things. So I had a job later on, you know, working framing and building houses and stuff. 
But uh, I've been in one side or the other, whether I was selling the materials or putting them together. But yeah, I started off just driving forklift out in the lumber yard and when my senior year in high school. And when I graduated, I took a full time job there. That's how I got started in the building industry. Are you still at that same lumber yard? I'm not at the same lumber yard. No, I've worked for three different lumber yards now. Um, two of them actually had gone bankrupt. And the last, the one I'm working for now is a privately owned uh, by a family. And, you know, pretty much he owns the land, the equipment and everything that goes on here. So I like this one because I don't think a bank's going to come in and bank, you know, sh- shut them down, you know. <laughs> Do you enjoy it? Um, you know, there's times where it gets a little, little overwhelming, but for the most part, I really enjoy doing the sales. Um, you know, that's kind of what I do for, for a living now is I do special orders and retail sales and working with the customers on their projects and seeing the progression through the project and watching it go to completion. It's pretty satisfying, um, you know, especially when the customers are real happy with, uh, with the way that everything went down. So, yeah, I really do enjoy the job. I enjoy being, being at work and, and, you know, the employees that I, you know, the fellow employees that I work with and the customers, it's a good position to be in. Does the business give you an insight into the economy in general on a daily basis? Is it something that's almost eye-opening to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, Having the position inside of the retail and then also having a exposure to the commercial end of things. Um, You know, I don't necessarily work directly with the home builders, but the guys who do are right there next to me. And so I'm in communication with them. And then also having communication with the vendors, the suppliers who uh, provide all the material to the lumber yards, I have a very close connection with them. So it gives me a very unique position and insight, considering that I'm also very exposed to the retail part of things. So I am exposed to pretty much all aspects of the final end of the sales and then also the distribution network as well. So, yes, it gives me a very good insight into the economy. How do you use that information? to your advantage? Um, Well, a lot of times um, I see things that are much different than what the media is saying out there. You know, for example, over the last, you know, six months, they talked a lot about the overwhelming consumer demand, but yet I wasn't experiencing that same overwhelming consumer demand at the retail side of things. You know, I am literally at the counter ringing up two by fours and I had less and less customers coming in over the last six months. And I had been reporting on that on my channel saying this overwhelming consumer demand, I don't think is exactly the way the media is putting it out there. And it turns out that I was pretty well right on that. So it gives me a much closer real time you know, exposure to what's going on in the economy that a lot of people don't get. Simon, why do you think the media is not representing what is really going on as you see it firsthand? Um, well, for one, I don't know if they necessarily can see what it is that I am seeing at the time, really the information, the data has to come out for them to report on it. So they're lagging. They're they're reporting on stuff that has already happened. And I'm talking about things that are happening today. So I don't know if they're necessarily just misunderstanding, misinterpreting, or just late to the game. And that's really why the media is probably different from what the things that I have been saying. And a lot of it also has to come from, you know, the top down perspective, 
from the like the Federal Reserve and their forward guidance. Well, that's the media, you know, interpreting what it is that the Federal Reserve is trying to get out there for information. And that credible threat that comes from the Federal Reserve, it's not exactly the reality that people are experiencing out there. It's more trying to gear them into a position. And that's like part of the media's game is to put out that information that the Federal Reserve wants out there. Um, I'm not saying like it's a conspiracy theory or not, but really when the Fed comes out and says something, the the media reports on it. And not always is that exactly accurate information. Simon, can you explain to those that might not understand, because one of the hopes of this channel is that people that don't know something will certainly learn something, not necessarily the basics of the economy structure, but how it all plays in to each other's hands. Because ultimately, I think a lot of times people don't realize how much everything really affects them until it either does or will, right? So if you can give a basic structure of how the economy actually works and what the Fed does and how that might affect us, that would be great. Okay. So typically, the well, let's think about what the Fed does. The Fed really, they can do two things. They can adjust interest rates and they can expand or contract the money supply. And if you just put it down to this, those two things that they can do, you have to think about what happens when they hit the lower bound of zero. They're stuck. They just lost one of their tools. So they can expand the money supply, but then adjusting of interest rates is not so easy any longer. So now the Federal Reserve, when they would typically, when they, friend just robot. So typically when the Federal Reserve would want to stimulate the economy, they would want to drop interest rates around 5%. This is at the Fed funds level. That's where the big banks that then lending to each other on an overnight basis. And then from that point on, the interest rates would follow what it is that the big banks are doing. So that's kind of like a quick, simple understanding of what the Federal Reserve is trying to do with their interest rates is they're trying to get the big banks to lend to each other on an overnight basis. And from that lending, it starts spreading throughout the rest of the economy. But when they hit that lower bound of zero, they can no longer stimulate the economy by dropping of interest rates. So at that point, they really need to do something different in order to get people to behave as if they were dropping interest rates. And that's where the credible threat starts to come in. A lot of it is the quantitative easing and the forward guidance that they put out there. And that really is where the Federal Reserve is most active as far as trying to get people to behave in a particular direction. So that's really how the economy starts to expand, is that when the interest rates drop, people start taking out those loans, they start buying more stuff, and then business starts to expand. When things get too hot, they want to try and raise the interest rates to take some of that steam out of things. And that's really like the most simplest way I can kind of explain what they are doing there. So would that be then for those that are listening, the reason now that some people might be going to purchase a house now they're seeing interest rates are going up, less people are buying, and ultimately it affects those people that either need to or want to purchase a house today. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, if you're looking at a house for $400,000 at 3% interest, your payment is going to be a whole lot lower than if it's at 6% interest. Well, at 6% interest on a $400,000 loan, it starts pricing people out of the market. When that happens, more homes become available and then the prices begin to fall in order for people to become a into a position in which that they can buy that house again. 
So the raising of interest rates was meant to slow down the economy in order to start building up some inventory in the housing market. You know, whether that works or not is still up to question because of how low the inventory levels are right now. And that's probably where a lot of people are misinterpreting a lot of what the Federal Reserve is doing because they say the raising of interest rates is going to crash the housing market. I have a little bit different opinion on that. I feel that the rising of interest rates is going to start providing more inventory to the housing market, but it may not necessarily cause the prices to go down as the demand for houses is still a, a way above the supply of it. Um, Why is the demand is. still so high? Well, it's not so much that the demand is high as much as it is that the supply is low. Okay. Yeah. And so there's always going to be demand for houses. People need a place to live. So that demand will pretty much remain constant, but the supply can adjust. When the supply goes down, a lot of people will look at that as high demand, but really it's more of low supply. Do you think that we will see the housing crash that we saw in 2008? Do you think that that will happen again anytime soon? I don't. Why? I don't I don't see the housing market crash uh, simply because of the idea that took place back during the great financial crisis was that a lot of people had taken a position inside of a mortgage that they couldn't afford. Today is much different. The lending standards are much higher and a lot of the homes that are being sold now are going to cash buyers. So there's a different position that we are in today than we were in during the great financial crisis. Even if home prices were to continue to rise, it still leaves a lot of cash buyers in the system who can take those, who can buy those houses and start renting them out. A lot of people are looking at like the hedge funds and some of the big money, you know, financial institutions who are, or, you know, uh, private money or hedge fund money that kind of thing going into those positions, not leaving a whole lot of room for the lending market to rise and cause that inventory to go up. I don't know if that kind of makes sense to a lot of people, but when you have so many cash buyers in the system, they don't really care where interest rates go. And if the house prices continue to go up, that's a position that they can continue to go into knowing that the asset will continue to rise and that they can sell it into the future. So the speculation of like, going into the home or going into housing and the prices rising is still quite prevalent within those cash buyers. And that's where I really feel that there's probably not going to be much of a housing crash, at least from that position of the rising of interest rates. The other thing you have to look at is the mortgage-backed securities. Now, if mortgage-backed securities, which is that box of like all the mortgages that everybody has taken out, if those things start to fail, like if they start to go down in price and the interest rates begin to rise, that could be another position in which that people are going to look at saying, hey, there's like the housing market's going to crash because of these failing mortgage-backed securities. But really, I don't feel that there's going to be a failure of these mortgage-backed securities because, again, back during the financial crisis, those were toxic assets. And today, they are much more sound investments. The Federal Reserve has a big position inside of these mortgage-backed securities, and if they go to unwind those, you could see the mortgage-backed securities fall. However, right now, there is buyers of mortgage-backed securities. There are investors who really do want these things, insurance companies, retirement funds, you know, just individual investors on their own. 
They want these mortgage-backed securities because for the most part, most people will end up making their payment and these mortgage-backed securities are a fairly safe investment so long as they're not toxic mortgage-backed securities. Well, when the interest rates rise, that creates a situation in which that people will no longer want to refinance their home. So during the quantitative easing and the lowering of interest rates, a lot of people were refinancing their homes. When they do this, they extinguish the initial the original loan and reestablish a new one. That reestablishing of a new one creates a new mortgage-backed security for the Federal Reserve to purchase. So this was creating a lot of mortgage-backed securities, this refinancing of loans that the Federal Reserve could purchase. Well, now that that refinancing boom is over, the Federal Reserve can unwind their mortgage-backed securities into a demand of investors and insurance companies and retirement funds where the pool of mortgage-backed securities that was created during the refinancing is just simply not there. So the Fed can unwind these mortgage-backed securities without really necessarily driving the mortgage-backed security market to the, you know, into the ground, which a lot of people thought would happen. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, a lot of people might be saying, you keep saying all these cash buyers. Mm-hmm. Where are all these people getting their cash money? Right. Well, yeah, that's uh, it's not necessarily like individuals themselves who had produced like a bunch of savings that they can then bring to the table. A lot of times what's happening with these cash buyers and you like I found it like even in my own local area is that they have sold an expensive home, say in L.A., and then they move up here to Astoria. So they sold their one million dollar home in Astoria or in in L.A. and they buy a five hundred thousand dollar home in Astoria or maybe even two five hundred thousand dollar homes in Astoria. That's where the like that that's really where like the issue starts to come in is that these cash buyers have sold something that was expensive in another location and then bought something cheaper, you know, in, in a cheaper location. And that's really where these cash buyers have come from. And then the private money. So the hedge funds and private equity firms and stuff like that, people who are looking to invest their capital that they have, and they go to these, you know, bigger institutions who then go out and buy homes to rent out. What do you recommend a younger couple does in terms of not only saving, because I think one of the failed um, things that we all go through, right, as a young young adult, whether it's your first job or second job, but being young is not really understanding not only how to save, but what to save, where to save, and most importantly, to really set yourself up for some sort of um, retirement fund, safety fund, whatever one wants to call it, because some people will choose to retire and some people won't. Right. And that's okay. But I think it's important that people know how to do it and where to do it. Right. And do you have any recommendations on that? Um, well, just to kind of give everybody an understanding of where I came from five years ago, I was completely broke an alcoholic in debt and really didn't have much going on. I decided that I was going to change my life and do things differently. So when that, when I made that decision, it doesn't really give me like a whole lot of experience as far as investing and saving and, you know, doing the right thing. Since I decided that I was going to change my life, I've gotten into three positions personally. 
I stack cash, I stack gold and silver, and I buy cryptocurrencies. Now, I don't recommend that anybody follow any of those things because, again, I'm not an investor. I try to be a saver. And those are the three positions that I have chosen to take. Now, silver is not something that I feel or the precious metals I feel is something that's going to make me some sort of millionaire. I use it as an insurance policy. It gives me something that I have in my hand that is out of the third party, rely, relying on the third party. I don't have to do that. So it's more of an insurance policy for me in case of failure of a bank or even failure in my own you know, decisions in life. I have this box of silver that I can rely on. I use it as an insurance policy. Cryptocurrencies are a very obscure way of saving. But considering that these things have been around for quite some time, you know, years now, and they only seem to be growing more prevalent through like industrial use or not industrial, but in institutional use and banking is now starting to get more into it as well. So like the Bureau of International Settlements has um, stated that these banks can now hold 1% reserves inside of Bitcoin which is saying to me that the institutions are starting to like eyeball these cryptocurrencies in a lot more of a, I don't know, um, how to say it, like legitimate way. Now, again, I wouldn't necessarily say to people like you should put all your money in Bitcoin, but taking a position in Bitcoin now would definitely be a benefit to somebody who is young and has time to wait for these things to grow, grow in more of a, I don't know, mainstream use. So those are the three positions that I've taken. Now, cash is only because I feel that cash is a great position to be in when things go on sale. And during a recession, everything goes on sale and you have to be in that cash position to do it. The idea that cash is trash is a very misunderstood thing. Like the demand for dollars outside of this country is far bigger than what's going on inside the country. People have this belief that inflation is going to erode the dollar away and that it's on a one-way street to the to death. I just don't believe that. I feel that the Federal Reserve and the having the Federal Reserve and having that uh, world currency and using that as the world reserve currency gives them the ability to do things that are not quite the same as what has taken place in history from the past. So a lot of people will look to like the Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe and say, look at these hyperinflation scenarios that took place when the money printer took off. But those countries didn't have a world reserve currency and they didn't have a demand for this currency outside of the United States. What a lot of people don't quite understand is that contracts have been written in dollars. These are these are contracts that don't have anything to do with the United States. They don't have anything to do with our banking industry. They don't have anything to do with our corporations. These are places like China who have like corporations like Evergrande. They have written debts in dollars. They receive dollars for these debts and they they're due back in dollars. And now the demand for those dollars is starting to increase as the debts are starting to default. And that's really creating a demand for dollars outside of this country that is much bigger than what people realize. Since you put money in crypto, you obviously believe that that is partly future, correct? Um, I do. But again, like I take a very cautious position when getting into cryptocurrencies. If you are putting money towards crypto, you might as well just be throwing it away. 
with that idea that you may not get it back. If you have that kind of stomach and confidence, then go for it. If you feel that the dollars that you are putting towards cryptos are too valuable for you to lose, then don't do it. I mean, that is like not the position you want to take. And holding cash is a very temporary thing. You only want to hold cash during times that they're not valuable, which is really a very far off concept for people to understand. They're like, why would you want to hold dollars if they're not valuable? It's because at some point they will become valuable again. So it's being fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. And when people were fearful of the dollar and they were saying that it was going to crash and that it was worthless, I thought to myself, nope, now's the time to start stacking cash because when the downturn comes, everybody's going to be stuck in their debts and the luxuries, the luxurious items that they have purchased will start to sell for pennies on the dollars for them to take care of their debts. And that's really what a recession is all about. Do you think, Simon, that the government will get involved in what we term as digital money exclusively? Yes. yes. Um, now, the central bank digital currencies, that's really going to be the main form of currency. And I would imagine that would probably in 20 years, you're going to see that's the only form of currency that's going to be in use. And now a lot of people are going to talk about it being like the the reason why they're doing it is so they can track and trace and tax and do all that other stuff with it. All these like kind of uh, intrusive big brother ideas coming into it. But really, it has more to do with negative interest rates. See, typically, the Federal Reserve would want to drop interest rates around 5%. But when they hit the lower bound of zero, dropping of interest rates was no longer an effective tool. Now, if they did go into negative interest rates, the system that we have right now with cash in the system would tell people that they're not going to keep their money in in the bank because they would lose it to a negative interest rate. They would just pull it all out in cash. Well, if they pull it all out in cash, then the banking system would no longer be able to function in the way that it does. They really need you to keep your money within that system. Well, if it's a central bank digital currency, that's the money. You are locked into that system. Either you keep it with the institutions or you have to invest it or spend it or do something with it, or you'll lose it to that negative interest rate that they are wanting to to push out there to try and spark the idea of people borrowing money to go out there and buy those assets, the houses, the cars, the going on vacation. So the central bank digital currency is more about taking interest rates into negative territory and to pull the cash out of the system. What happens then to people that have crypto? Is that money transferred or how does that work its way into the system, if you will? Well, that's going to be a really interesting one because the cryptocurrencies, there are so many out there. There's like all these alternative coins. Right. And, you know, there's it's really hard to to try and guess which one of these is going to be the correct one to be be positioned into. I think about it like the dot com boom when everything was, you know, had dot com behind it and the stock market just blew up with all these dot com businesses. But yet most of these things weren't really viable businesses. And when the boom was over, all these things crashed as the money started pulling out of it. Well, very something very similar could happen with these alternative coins out there. There are some good projects out there, but which ones are the Amazons of the world? Who knows? So that's really where like a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money within these cryptocurrencies. But then some people stand to make a lot, a lot of money off of it. There will be billionaires because of it. There will be billionaires because of it. Yes. And 
in the end, I feel that Bitcoin is going to be the digital gold. It may not be the crypto of choice to do transactions with, but it will be the crypto of choice to for like countries to transfer wealth between each other. The reason behind that is, is that Bitcoin has the highest security level to it. That's the reason why I feel that it's going to be the digital gold. See, they know how to hack cryptos. If you can do a 51% attack on it, meaning that you can take over 51% of the computers that process Bitcoin, then you could change the ledger to whatever you want it to be. But doing that with Bitcoin would take so much time and energy and money just to get there and such a coordinated effort that the possibilities of happening are so minute that most likely that it will never take place. And that's really where I feel Bitcoin is the superior crypto over all the rest of them. I can't help but ask, you mentioned digital gold. What will happen to gold? Actual well, gold. Well, gold has been money for 5,000 years. Yep. I don't think that's going to change. Okay. And when you think about something that is tangible in your hand that you can trade anonymously, well, that is going to be the only thing of wealth out there. Everything else is going to be a confidence game with the institutions that are out there. I feel that having gold in hand will preserve your wealth unlike anything else can. So in my opinion, even though it may not be the currency of choice to do world trade, it will certainly be the item of choice to secure your wealth and to be outside of that third party, including the cryptocurrencies. So in my opinion, it will continue to do quite well and you'll be able to trade that gold even if you even if it's like even if the institutions say you're going to be fined or taxed or whatever for this gold if you make laws that restrict something that somebody wants you will cause the price of it to go up just think of like firearms and drugs and sex you know all these things that you try to make illegal that people want causes the price to go through the roof so i just feel that if they try to make laws that prevent people from holding gold it would make that gold much more valuable to trade. The other big thing to me is you behind a lumberyard counter seeing wholesale distribution and retail to me is nobody can pay for that. Right. And very few people get to see that, which is really, really, it, it's very interesting on many levels. Yeah. You um, know, and that's really where like, you know, that's where my perspective is so different is because you know, most people who who understand the economy had to take classes. They had to go to school, you know, in order to learn this right. stuff. Very few people have taken it to the level that I have completely on their own just to try and say, OK, I'm just going to study this stuff every single day and ask questions and try to find the answers to these things. What ends up happening is that most people start with the base, like they get an understanding of like this kind of base idea of what the economy is, and then they start building off that base. Well, there's you have to go back down to that base every time. I don't have that base. I, I don't have anything that I started from. I mean, I kind of picked right in the middle and started just looking around. So I'm not like, you know, like a lot of people will take on like the Austrian school of economics and they'll think about like, you know, sound money and, you know, free market capitalism and stuff like that. And then they'll base their ideas off of this. Other uh, people will go into a Keynesian economics, which is kind of completely opposite of that. And they'll think about like how it is that lending into the system and producing, you know, this fiat currency is better for, you know, business cycles and stuff like that. And so they they start off on this base. 
I don't have that. I don't have that base. And so I'm just kind of like obscured and looking at everything from every direction. And I'm not locked into any one particular idea or the way things ought to be. And I just kind of look at things the way they are and use these different theories and ideas to try and say, hey, look at this, you know, from this angle, which a lot of people didn't won't do because they're kind of stuck at that base. You know? And that's one of the things like, you know, when I see things that is, is different from what anybody else is seeing, like when I saw the lumber started coming up in short supply, I was looking at it and I was like, it, it was easy for me because one day I'm calling up my vendor, right? So this is how it goes down. I call up my vendor and I said, Hey man, I'm calling up my pressure treated guy. And I said, Hey, I need my, I need some stock. I need four by fours, two by sixes, you know, and I'm giving him my list and he says, okay, um, I'm going to send you about half that stuff and it's going to be the wider lengths and, and, more. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're only going to send me like my two by eights and two by twelves. And he says, yeah, that's all I have. And I'm like, no, that's ridiculous, dude. It's the beginning of summer. I need four by fours. I need to build decks and fences. And I got all these customers who are going to build these projects, you know, send me my four by fours. I can't. And I'm like, why can't you do it? He says, I don't have any. Wow. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, bro. You're telling me you don't have four by four to send me and it's spring. And he says, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I'm like, well, when are you going to get more? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, wait a minute. You don't know when you're going to get four by fours. I said, this is the start of all my projects. I need four by fours. And he says, I don't know when I'm going to get you more. The mills aren't running them. They're only running plate stock and, you know, framing material. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, holy moly, that's going to start sending prices through the moon to the moon. Right now I was on George Gammon's channel doing an interview with him and i gave him that that prediction i said hey four by fours are running out i'm running out of material you're going to see prices go you know go really high it wasn't but two weeks later after that there was reports across the country of pressure treated shortages and so i was first to see it because my vendor now if my vendor had a youtube channel and was talking about lumber he would have been the first one to talk about it but i was because i was talking you know i just happened to have the channel at the time so this is really where my insight really starts to be that real time information is because I'm reporting on things that I am seeing right now today. And yeah, that's really where like, you know, having this, having this position and having that view is unlike anybody else's. Yeah. And, and then the also other- you, you have to understand macroeconomics a little bit on top of it, because if somebody who didn't understand econ- you know, the economy and they heard this, they would just say, okay, well, the vendor's out. Oh, well, and now that, that would be the end of their thoughts, you know, and to me, I'm like, whoa, and I start thinking of all these, you know, cause and effects from it. And the other thing that I find really interesting about your YouTube channel are the comments on each video, because clearly there are people that are economists watching and they comment. And I find that fascinating, actually. Um, I don't want to say as much as the content that you produce, but certainly as much as. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I think the comment section of my channel really is the channel. It's the videos. The videos are cool. You know, I put out these really kind of outside of the box thoughts and perspectives and stuff, but I always link the information so that the people who are watching the videos can then go read the links, read the articles, read the speeches that I'm talking about so that they can form their own opinion. The video itself is my opinion to try and start that conversation. Correct. I may be right or wrong or indifferent in the matter, 
But then the comments that pour into it really say a lot about what's going on because you get so many, so much more perspectives. People will come in and say, Hey man, I totally agree. I'm seeing the same thing. Or people will be like, no, man, you're not looking at it in the right form. You need to look at it like this. Here's some ideas that you should follow. And then I realized, wow, yeah, that is true. I didn't think about it in such fashion. So really the comment section of my videos is far more the like the meat of of my channel is is down in the comment section. And it is such a broad, broad group of people. I mean, I have people from just trying to figure out what's going on in the economy all the way up to head fund, hedge fund managers and investors who are looking to get my real-time perspective on things. I had a guy email me a while back who said, man, I really love your lumber reports. I did a trade based on your information and I made a bunch of money off of it. Thank you. Right. And I went, I emailed him back and I'm like, Hey man, that is so awesome. I wish I knew how to make money like that right. with my information. He sent me a hundred bucks. He says, well, there's your commission. You know, and I was just like, well, isn't that cool? You know, it's cool. so yeah, I have a very broad, broad audience from people who are just now trying to figure out what's going on to people who are very aware of the situation and looking for that real time information. Perfect segue into the next question and the next topic. Yeah. A lot of wealthy people are buying tangible assets right? And assets that in the past have not been something that we would even call an asset, such as a boat, an airplane, something that's typically a depreciating asset, right? Do you have any insight as to why people are putting their money into something that is not only pleasure, but it's not something that typically in history has been an appreciating asset? Well, I have to probably take that back down to the Cantillon effect. Now, the uh, Richard Cantillon, and a lot of people say Cantillon, but uh, he was a French guy, so he pronounced it Cantillon. The Cantillon effect is a very interesting theory as far as the flow of money and what happens when new money starts coming into the system. Now, a lot of times when you hear economists talk about the Cantillon effect, they will talk about new money coming into the system. The people who have first access to that money will like to spend that at face value. As that money starts to flow through the system, it starts driving the prices up of everything that, you know, that of everything. And the people who have last access to that money, they suffer the most as they have to pay higher prices, but their wages haven't gone up. Typically, most invest or most economists will end the Cantillon theory at that, like the the Cantillon effect. But Cantillon talked about it much deeper than that. And what happens is if this continuous flow of money, of new money comes into the system, what it will do is it will start driving out the domestic manufacturing of that state. So as this new money comes in and the prices start to come up, the people who have access to that money, they don't want to spend it on higher prices. They want to still spend it on the same things that they had, you know, or the same prices that they had once experienced. So what will happen is, is they start driving in ever increasing amounts of foreign production. Now, kind of stick with me for a second on this. As this foreign production starts to come in, it starts driving out the domestic manufacturing. As that domestic manufacturing leaves, it takes out the inhabitants and the, the only people who are really left in that system are the people who are importing those, those goods the people who have access to the money, 
and then a bunch of people who are in poverty. Once the money turns off, everybody flows into poverty. Now, the problem with it is, is that as that new money is coming into the system, they start going into luxuries. And that's really probably why you're seeing the planes and the how you know the boats and all that other stuff, jewelry, is because that luxurious purchases is what they really want with that money. They want to enjoy their life more. So as the money continues to pour in, ever-increasing amounts of luxuries get purchased until eventually the money turns off and everybody falls into poverty. Had they not purchased those luxuries and just held on to the money and didn't increase their standards of living and all that other stuff, yep. then the Encantion effect really wouldn't happen. But that doesn't that's not what happens. As people get the money, they want to enjoy that money and they start spending it on things that start creating that Cantillon effect. Do you think though that some of it is caused by and not to get political, but people get nervous of their political beliefs? So they figure I might as well spend the money while I have it and put it into an asset because my money might be devalued over time. Um, well, I can certainly see where like a lot of people might feel that where they, you know, where you have this fear of inflation coming into the future. And so this inflation expectation actually creates the inflation. Right. And before they lose their purchasing power of this money, they want to go out there and buy all those all those awesome things before the prices go up. So but that's a that's a kind of a short lived expectation that happens there. And and what I mean by short lived, I mean, it could take years for this to go through, you know, when you think about it on a longer term. But that's really where, like, the idea of, like, inflation expectation drives people into those those particular things. Um, but, yeah, I can certainly see that happening, especially when you have so much mass media attention to the troubling inflation that everybody's experiencing. A friend mentioned to me, I think it was a friend of a friend, is a jeweler. And this jeweler claims that people are often walking in and buying diamonds because it's one of the quickest ways to get rid of millions of dollars and put it in your pocket. Yeah. And that just blew me away. Yeah. Um, I have to question why diamonds? Like, you know, when you think about like the use of gold and silver, it actually has an industrial use to it. You know, yep. especially silver. Silver is by far probably next to oil, the m most needed commodity on the planet, considering how much like it's not necessarily like how much silver is going into a device, but how much demand for silver for all the little devices that we use throughout the throughout this world right now. You know, the electrical grid, solar panels, communications, all this stuff is reliant upon silver. And if you were to take silver out of the equation, like just zap all the silver off the planet immediately, we would fall right back into a primitive state where we would be using sticks and stones and fire pits to, to live by because silver is that much. It has that much use within our life. I mean, we need silver in order to function the way we do. And like 50% of the silver that is produced goes into this industrial use. So, yeah, silver is much different from diamonds. Now, diamonds can be made artificially, especially for the industrial use of it. You know, if you're using diamonds for like, say, a cutting wheel or something like that, right. you can manufacture an artificial diamond that will do that for you. 
you can't necessarily manufacture this gold or silver to do the same thing. There's really nothing on the planet that could substitute for it. So I kind of question the use of diamonds to try and secure your wealth. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I just feel that diamonds may not be the position that people want to be in, although I probably have worked for a long time. <laughs> right. Do you think with all of the inflation that the U.S. stands to be in a food shortage? Um, yes, but it's that has more to do with a failure of production that is taking place. And it's not so much the United States that is going to run short of food. It's going to be the rest of the world that does as you know, the issues that are taking place with like, you know, the Russia, Ukraine war and the fertilizer distribution, the investment into new equipment, investment into farmlands that has diminished quite a bit. And so the production of food around the world is going to drop dramatically. Now, the United States exports far more food and than it consumes, right? We have this abundance of food and we supply that food to the world. Like, I mean, we export more than any other nation does. And I think the close second is Germany and Germany is having issues with their food production now. So it's not so much the things that are happening within the United States in the inflation scenario. It was the lack of production that has taken place. And that is really what's going to drive the food prices up. And now a lot of people are saying, well, we'll we just won't run out of food here in the United States. And that's probably true. We won't run out of food. But the demand outside of the United States that will buy the food, that's going to drive the prices up here in the United States. And people just simply won't be able to afford it. You don't think that the inflation within the United States, though, has put some farmers out of business and food processors out of business through COVID, through inflation. These these people have suffered terrible losses in the last couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what caused the inflation? Right. What caused the inflation? And do we have an overwhelming consumer demand or do we have lack of supply? I think about the inflation scenario and. I kind of disagree with the way that people are saying that it was the money printer go burr that caused the inflation. And it's a very difficult thing for people to wrap their heads around to say like money printer go burr, prices go up. What else do you need to know? Right. Mm -hmm. This is it. And I, I have very few people who seem to answer the question is it's like, well, they Federal Reserve took their balance sheet back in the, you know, during the great financial crisis from eight hundred and fifty billion dollars to four point five trillion. They quadrupled the money supply and yet failed to achieve the 2% target inflation rate that they were looking for. Why? It's because maybe the idea of quantitative easing doesn't cause inflation. It's the self-fulfilling prophecy that believing inflation will happen, and that's what really causes it. At the same time that this belief that there's inflation expectation is going to be running hot because it's all over the media and the money printer go burr and everybody talk about that, at the same time, we had a severe supply chain breakdown. People were not producing and people were not distributing through the through the actually through the planet, but through the system in that efficient manner. So when you have supply and demand that is met and then all of a sudden you drop supply, well, the demand didn't change. But yet now you have an obscurity to the prices because the demand is higher than the supply and prices begin to elevate. That is where I feel that the inflation truly came from, is that the supply had diminished dramatically. You think about a hundred freighters sitting off of the ports, 
You think about all the, you know, container ship or, or containers sitting at the port docks that are not transporting through the nation. You think about the lack of trucking that was happening out there. Well, that's really what caused the inflation that happened out there was this lack of supply. Now that we're seeing the supply come in, you're finding places like Walmart and Target have an oversupply of stuff. And to the point that when people go to return stuff, they're telling them in many locations, keep your stuff and here's your money. You can just, we don't even want it back. So I have to ask, how deflationary is that? You know? And so it really proves to me that it wasn't necessarily an overwhelming consumer demand. It was a lack of supply. Unfortunately, because the manufacturers and distributors and everybody else around the world doesn't quite realize that it wasn't an overwhelming consumer demand that was taking place and that they have to produce all this stuff to meet that consumer demand, it was the lack of supply that was out there. So now we have this overwhelming production that is now entering the system, and that's going to actually be very damaging in the long run because as less orders come into these manufacturers, you're going to see them start to shut down. And we're actually starting to see that happen. You know, if you look over, I was just reading an article yesterday about how steel manufacturers in China are now suffering from this exact thing. They have an overstock pile and they really don't have a whole lot of orders coming in. You know, so here it is. It's like, where did that overwhelming consumer demand go? It's what it never really existed in the first it place. False. It was false. It was a false. Yeah, it was. It it's, well, it's referred to as the bullwhip effect. And the bullwhip effect is where, like, obscurities within this distribution line doesn't give a clear picture all the way through. And I kind of related it down to a plumbing fitting because I saw it actually happen. There's this simple little tiny plumbing fitting that I use for an example. It's a rubber Fernco coupling, right? And it has, it's just a rubber, it's just basically like a little short rubber tube that goes over two ends of pipe and it has hose clamps on each end of it. It's for joining two kind of different pipes. You want cast iron to plastic. Okay. And now people who do groundwork, like septic systems or you know stuff like that, this little $10 part is a critical piece. I mean, they need this to get their $10,000 for their job. And if they don't have this $10 piece, they can't complete their job. Well, during the you know lockdowns, everything came in short supply because they weren't distributing anything through the nation. They were also shut down manufacturings on a lot of stuff. So these rubber fern coats came up in short supply. For weeks they were missing. Now, when they finally came in, I, I mean, I experienced it with one, you know, a guy comes in, he does this groundwork, he sees that we have them, he grabs like all of them. And I'm like, whoa, bro, you just need one or two of them, right? You don't need to grab all of them. He goes, yeah, but I had so many jobs get held up because of these things. I'm stocking up. I'm not going to run short. So it was a panic buy that took place. Now, the next customer who came in, next time I got a supply of them in, he did the exact same thing. He took them all. And I'm like, you know, you guys don't panic buy. I got tons of them in the warehouse. Don't worry about it. I mean, we got our supply back. They're, nope, same thing. I'm not going to run short again. That's cool if you have your supply, but I have my supply now too. Wow. Well, my computer algorithm keeps seeing that we're running out of these things. So the computer algorithm says, hey, you've got this overwhelming consumer demand. We need to increase the amount that you're carrying. Well, now I think about if my store did this and other stores are doing this, the distributor is looking at this overwhelming consumer demand that's actually panic buying. And that starts sending this ripple through the account, through, throughout the rest of the distribution network. But it's not just that, because when we were allocated, right, we go to order something and they're like, we order 100 pieces. And they say, well, you're going to get like 30 because, you know, we got to make sure that everybody gets a little bit so they can distribute out too. And I was like, wait a minute, I need a, I need a hundred, I need a hundred. I don't need 30. I need a hundred here in order to do my job. 
I need 300, actually. That's what I need is 300 pieces, not 100. So hopefully, if you order 300, you might get the 100 that you need. Again, the distributors don't see this overwhelming consumer demand that isn't really there. It's false consumer demand. And this is really what ended up rippling through the economy. And now we're feeling the effects of this bullwhip. China. Let's talk yes. about China and, um, and the United States. Obviously, yes. um, we rely a lot on them and, and vice versa. I mean, we, we have to be very clear about that, right? I mean, it's a two-way yes. street. It is. Regardless of of what people might want to believe or might say, it is a two way street. Yes, absolutely, it is. I mean, I, I think about like the pharmaceuticals that are like a lot of the medicine that comes to this to this country comes from China. I think about all the like consumer goods like TVs and clothing and stuff like that. This is all stuff that's manufactured in China that comes to us. So we are very much reliant on China to provide us with all these luxuries that we enjoy, like shoes and clothing and TVs and phones and stuff like that. So yes, we are reliant on China. And China, again, is also reliant on us to buy those things. So that's like the two-way street that we have to deal with. Um, The trade imbalance is really where it comes down to the problem because you know, a lot of people will say like, it, you really, again, it comes down to like the Cantillon effect. There was a time in this country where we produced and lent out more money than anybody else. Now we consume and borrow more money than anybody else. And the reason for that was, is that as we were manufacturing and sending stuff throughout the world, they were sending us money. That's new money coming into the system. As this new money came into the system, we started to enjoy a standard of living that was increasing. And then when that standard of living started to increase, so did the prices. And that's when we started importing more and more foreign goods until the point that we came to now, like we are now, where we're reliant on these imported foreign goods because we just don't simply manufacture enough here. With the world events going on currently with uh, Ukraine, Russia, China, America, how how do we get past the financial part, right? I mean, not talking about the political side, but the financial part is so, so important to this country and China, right? And yet politically, it's quite frankly a mess. No matter what side anybody's on, it's a mess politically, right? And every country is reliant on that financial part. Where do you see that going? Um, just to kind of give everybody an idea, I quit following politics about eight years ago. Why? Um, because it's, it's more confusing to try and follow the economy and politics than to just follow the economy. Right. Okay. I have never been so confused about economics as I was when I was very involved in following politics. Like there was a time I could name off every congressman and woman I could name off all the different like incredible like laws and things that they wanted to pass but most of this stuff is a bunch of noise that will confuse the hell out of you and especially the way they talk about like the way things ought to be i quit looking at all that stuff i started following the fed following what you know they were saying in their speeches and i started looking at things just the way they are now as far as like what to do about it i don't I don't know if there's anything that can be done. I think this is a cycle in which that we are going to follow. 
at some point, the United States is going to fail. Like it's it's just an inevitability that it's going to happen. And it's not so much that the United States is going to fail because of any other reason than fiat currency has a life cycle to it. Business has a life cycle to it. Everything has this cycle that's going on to it. And if you think about the Cantillon effect, we don't manufacture a whole lot in this nation. If there ever came a time that the dollar ceased to be the world reserve currency, we don't have a manufacturing base to support ourselves. So it's almost critical that we keep the Federal Reserve as the provider of the world reserve currency in order to continue our way of life. And other nations are reliant on that as well for us to purchase their stuff. I mean, how long that can last, I don't know. Would you not agree that there is some sort of correlation between the economy and politics? Maybe in the way that people behave when they think about politics, but some of the theories of economics span through politics, governments, societies. It's not, some things are just simply not going to change. And um, there is a correlation, obviously, when you have governments behaving in certain fashions, you know, then yes, there is going to be, you know, a correlation to it. But I found myself that the cause and effects from like the political atmosphere has less to do with the banking industry than people want to give it credit for. Interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've made some pretty accurate calls within the economy and I quit following politics a few years ago. Like, you know, when you have things like stimulus packages, I mean, that's a political thing. Right. But I have a feeling that was more at the pressure of the Federal Reserve. Like, we need helicopter money. Right. Well, you can't be like, I mean, it wasn't like, I don't think that Congress came together and said, you know, I got this idea. What we're going to do is we're going to lock down the economy. We're going to set up special purpose vehicles. We're going to do these stimulus checks. We're going to do all this stuff. And they came up with that in five minutes. Like, they didn't right. do that. Right. That was a plan that was already set up by the Federal Reserve in case of an emergency or planning. Like, I mean, I don't want to call out like the conspiracy theory that the plan, the pandemic was a planned event. Right. But the Federal Reserve had a very good strategy to deal with that. And it was very quick that they came up with it. And I don't think they came up with such an idea like that. Right. You know? I would agree with that. And would you also then say that that had a, I don't want to say a terminal effect, but certainly a uh, bad effect on the economy by handing out money? Well, yeah. I mean, anytime you ever hand out money, you're going to get a shot in the arm. I mean, it's like getting high for the afternoon or something like that. I mean, you're going to just, you're going to love that. You know, it's going to be great. The only problem with it is, is that after after the stimulus runs out, well, now you got to work hungover to pay back the debt plus interest, and that's really what's going to end up happening as we go into into this recession. But that stimulus, it was really just a shot in the arm to give people the idea that there was a bunch of money floating through the system to give that inflation expectation. Now it did work. I mean, I'm not saying that you know stimulating the economy with a bunch of checks didn't get people out there, you know running down to my lumber yard and buying up all the rest of the material that I had so they could build decks and fences and, you know, enjoy their environment since they were going to be locked down at home. I mean, that stimulus check, I felt the effects of it. I mean, it came in, but it was short lived. It was only for the time that it was happening. Once they turned it off, then that's, that's over. It's gone. 
Now we're feeling the problems of what the reality of the situation was, is that the supply had dropped dramatically and it wasn't this overwhelming consumer demand. That's really what I feel taking place. So, yeah, the, you know, the dropping of helicopter money, that definitely had an impact on the economy. But again, I think it was more short lived and not quite what people are thinking that it did. When I was a kid, it was always talked about national debt. It was always a big topic, right? Here we are, many, many, many more trillions of dollars deeper in the hole as a country. At what point does this country truly have to get serious about that? Because we obviously don't want to go bankrupt as a country and turn into a Venezuela, right? Yeah. How, um, how and when does that actually change, if it does? Do you really believe that we can, at this point, change that and still live the life that we live today? Nope. I agree. Nope. Nope. It's not going to happen. Isn't it? It is a scary scenario. Um, It really is. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, we have to deal with this debt. We need to start paying our bills, stuff like that. It can't happen. I mean, what you would have to do is basically work harder for less. And if that's the environment that you want to be in, then maybe we could do something like that. But I doubt it because people don't want to work harder for less. They want to work harder and get more for it or not work at all and get something for it. That's the two positions that they'll take. The de- in Really, what it comes down to is having the world reserve currency. There's no other nation that's going to be able to do it. And the, and the main reason is, is that there, you have to have two things. In order to be the world reserve currency, you have to have a safe and liquid asset like the U.S. Treasury, which I don't know exactly how much confidence people have in it. But out of all the rest of the sovereign debts out there, the U.S. Treasury would be the gold standard. Right. So you have to have a safe and liquid asset like the U.S. Treasury. Then you would have to be able to go into debt enough to provide the world with that you that safe and liquid asset, which means that you have to go incredibly deep into debt and to provide this world with this safe and liquid asset. Then on top of it, you got Triffin's dilemma, which is how do you provide the world with the currency? Right? So now they need the dollars out there in order to do their trade. Now, in order to do that, you have to have a deficit trade, meaning that you have to bring in more stuff to send those dollars out to the rest of the world. And that is two things that most nations won't even attempt to do. China won't do it. They're not even close. Like they don't have a big enough debt market to provide the world with that safe and liquid asset. And not that anybody would even trust it anyway. And then they certainly don't want to go into a massive trade deficit where they're buying more than what they send. So as far as I'm concerned, there is no fixing the debt in the United States. It's only going to grow bigger as the demand for dollars increases. What's the breaking point? When people don't want to send us stuff anymore. (laughs) You know, when they, I mean, the breaking point, the breaking point will eventually come when the dive into luxuries has the people who is basically going to be a separation of classes. You're going to have those who have and those who have not, right? The dive into luxuries is really what's going to drive people into having more and more foreign imports coming in. That's the problem. Because once you turn off the foreign imports, there is no domestic manufacturing. That would be the breaking point right there. 
if there was ever another currency that came up that could compete, like even remotely compete, then you might have this transferring over and we would start feeling the effects of that. Our, you know, the standard of living would begin to drop. We would have less, you know, fancy cars to drive and clothes and all that other stuff. People would be going into just their necessities where it's like food and clothing and stuff like that. That's an environment that people are just not quite aware of or prepared to deal with. So the breaking point is going to come when that happens, when like all of a sudden the the demand for dollars ceases to exist and people start going over to a much more useful world reserve currency. But there isn't one. Right. Until that happens, you know, it, w- it will eventually. But I mean, I just don't see it yet. There is all kinds of nations that are setting up like the BRICS nations who are trying to do something about it. The trade between like Russia, India and China, that's starting to become more prevalent. But these things are so minute in comparison that they're really not even comparable yet. I mean, not even close. So although it's happening, it's not it's not significant yet. For the people that are watching that are wondering why Simon is sitting in his car with dice on his rearview mirror. Can you answer the question of why? Why I sit in my car? Well, I started doing videos in my car because it's quiet, right? I don't have a studio. I had this big house. I had the dogs barking and the kids running around and stuff. So I said, okay, I'm going to go make a video and I'll go out to my car. Well, I found that, you know, the sound inside of the car is so much better than anywhere else I could find. So it's like an awesome little studio. The dice, they were sent to me by a fan. I threw them up there. I'm like, hey, that's cool. And then people started doing numerology and they started talking about doing stock picks off of the numbers that came up on there. And so they ended up sticking around. I couldn't even take them down. They're like, hey, where's the dice, bro? So the <laughs> dice ended up going up there because of the, the viewer sending them to me. This is the $500 car. It runs awesome, right? So every month I'm saving money to buy me a brand new Camaro. Now I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, someday you're going to see me with these dice hanging off the rear view mirror of a Camaro. That's why I drive this old car. And then it became part of my brand anyway. So now it's just like I had some it was kind of funny because I had a lady one time. She was like, oh, the uneducated economist. That was such a good idea with the car and the jacket and the dice. And I'm like, that's my car and that's my jacket. And those are my dice, you know. And so that's funny. Like I, this isn't a show. I didn't I didn't like, you know, invent this idea. Just this is the way it is came about. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. Simon, is there anything that I haven't asked or that you would like to share? I don't know. I mean, we talked about quite a bit. Um, You know, I ramble on so much. Uh, I guess like really when it comes down to some of the things that I feel like I'm like an expert in, I don't really feel like I'm an expert in anything, but I have a really good insight into the lumber industry. And right now, I think that if you're following lumber or you're looking to do projects or you just want to know where the new construction market is going to go, Following lumber and lumber futures is a very good indicator of what's going to be happening into the future. Now, we have lumber futures sitting at 635, or I haven't checked it today. It might be around 650 or maybe even higher right now. And that is considering like what we've had from the past. Although a high, it's really not that bad of a number because we were experiencing that back in 2018. So here it is four years later, and we have lumber futures trading about what it was four years ago. And that, to me, says that there's not quite the demand that we were experiencing during the pandemic when you had 1,700 per thousand and no inventory. 
there was a lot of people who were wanting to build those decks and fences and stuff like that. Well, those projects have either been pulled from the past or from the future and were accomplished. There's less demand for lumber going out that way. So now we just have to look at whether or not it's going to be the construction demand that's going to be able to pull that lumber up to that high price because you got cost push, demand pull. Well, the demand pull on lumber doesn't seem to be nearly as prevalent as it once was. So really, if you're going to follow like the lumber industry and you're going to follow what's going to happen to the new construction market, you have to follow what lumber futures are doing, the demand for those lumber, for that lumber. And then on top of that, you have to go and look at the mills and to see if they're going into curtailments, how much they are actually providing into the economy or into the distribution for the economy to take advantage of. And right now, I see mills going into curtailment during a time in which that you would think there would be high demand. It's summer, right? This is where you want to do all the framing. It leads me to believe that the home builders are very nervous about going into the future and at least the prices of homes that they would be able to sell it for. If your projection is, is that I'm going to sell this house for for $500,000, but by the time you complete it, it's only going for four fifty. You just lost 50% or $50,000 $50, on your margins, and that could be all your profit. And so... That makes like builders very nervous going into the future. And that's probably why we're seeing less demand and why we're seeing the mills going into curtailment. Once that flips, you're going to know that the demand is starting to pick up and the builders are starting to go back into, into the idea that they're going to be able to sell their homes for a profit again. So I guess if there was anything, follow the lumber industry and they'll tell you a lot about what the new construction is going to do. And follow Simon on YouTube at Uneducated Economist. And yeah. I have to ask, Simon, you do the sign off as you always do at the end of your videos. Yes. Uneducated economist. You guys let me know. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.